Oh, nice to see a nice full sanctuary. People who came to hear John 3.16, you don't have your signs. Uh, you know, those Sabbath breakers at NFL football games holding up their John 3.16 signs. Bit of dissonance to me at least, you know. Get to church. <laughs> anyway, I'm already fired up. I haven't even started reading. Um, and we are in John 3.16, page 888. If you can't find John 3.16, then I'll have the deacons lead you out. <laughs> Unless it's a deacon. But. So verse 16, we're going to read through to verse 21. Just for those who are visiting, uh, we, we are going through the Gospel of John. And uh, this section is where we will be in today. So I'll begin at verse 16, reading to verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words, and as familiar as they are to us, we pray not only for familiarity, but for understanding, and not only for understanding, but for application, that we may be those who receive the most benefit from the words of God. So bless us to that end, we pray. Amen. I came across a glorious, at least to me it was a glorious quote from a Puritan called Thomas Manton, and uh, this was in preparation for this sermon, and he was speaking about a child, and the quote was quite moving, at least to me, but he says, what is a child but a piece of a parent wrapped up in another skin? And I thought about that, and can certainly Uh, as a father, see, uh, at least in one of my kids, but perhaps even more, that they have been wrapped up in another skin. I even brought her with me just so that you can get to know her after the service and confirm everything that I've said is indeed true. And uh, you see that uh, this semblance of a child to a parent is one of the more fascinating things that uh, we deal with in the world. It's always an easy conversation starter. Once you move beyond the weather and uh, you get to the next level, uh, you can easily talk about your children and uh, what your children are like and so on and so forth. If you, if you want to win a prize, and the prize would be uh, you need to be able to continue a conversation with someone for two hours, let me suggest that if you were to do that, just go and talk to them about their children. They will have so much to say. They will have so many things to tell you, stories 
parents who just love to talk about their children. It's a glorious, glorious thing to see that. Uh, some of us are a bit excessive about how great our children are. I'll, I'll admit to that. But uh, there's something suitable in the way God has made us that brings out a parent's love for a child. Now, what does that have to do with the text? Well, you'll notice that God is the subject of the first verse in verse 16. For God so loved the world. Now again, a few points about this world. This world is most interesting because in chapter 3 already, you have heard from Nicodemus, where Jesus shows a great deal of love towards Nicodemus, and later on in the gospel it is reciprocated in the way Nicodemus cares for Jesus. But Nicodemus is a Jewish man, a religious leader. He is a teacher of Israel. He is, in a certain sense, a representative of the people of God, and Christ treats him that way when he says, Nicodemus, you, on behalf of Israel, need to experience resurrection life. But then, in chapter 4, for God so loved the world that you go from a religious man to this immoral woman who is now living with a man who is not her husband. And she is not a Jew, but a Samaritan. For God so loved the world, yes, the Nicodemuses of this world, the Samaritan women of this world, the tax collectors of this world, the sinners of this world. God so loved the world. And to a Jewish person in the first century, this is a momentous statement. Because they had read in their Old Testaments of you, all the nations on the earth, have you only have I loved. You I give the law to. You I give the promises to. You I give circumcision, the boundary markers, the Sabbath, dietary laws. You who are distinct from the world, from the Gentiles, from the dogs. And now we're reading, for God so loved the world. And God's love to the world is not to be admired because the world is so big. D.A. Carson makes this point in his commentary. He says, it's not to be admired because the world is so big and includes so many people. God's love is to be admired to this world because the world is so bad. And when you read the way in which the word world is used in John's gospel, it usually has in mind rebellious humanity. So the great New Testament polemicist Benjamin Warfield was writing about this, and he said the world is not just a, a synonym of all that is evil and noisome and disgusting. Or he says it is that, but there is nothing in it. There's nothing in this world that can attract God's love. The point of the word's employment in John 3.16 is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but that the world is so bad that it takes a special type of love to embrace it. And that love is the love of giving His only Son. For God so loved this sinful, rebellious, darkened world that hates God by nature that He gave the world His only Son. How does God so love? 
How does he show the intensity of his love by giving his only son? God so loved the world that he could have done a million different things, and he has. But the pinnacle of God's love to the world is established in this statement. Luther calls John 3.16 the Bible in miniature. You take John 3.16 and you blow it up and let it explode, and this is what you come up with. God so loved the world, the rebellious, darkened world, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, boy and girl, that He gave everyone the very best. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. It is the positive way of saying what is negatively stated in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Here's the positive side. That He gave His only Son. And this is to bring out, I think, something of the emotion of, of, of what is going on here. Because if you think about the one relationship where another person would do anything to spare another person a degree of suffering or pain in the most natural way that God has ordered things, it is always the parent wishing to spare their child something painful. It, in a sense, goes against nature that a child would want to spare the parent. Though it can happen in certain contexts, the more natural order of things is that a parent would wish to spare a child. So when John writes, for God so loved, he says this is how much he loved that he gave his only son. God did not have multitudes of sons. He had one son, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, and he gave him his only son. That's why we read earlier the classic case of a man not sparing his only son. Abraham, take your son. And what were the words? Your only son whom you love. It's almost as though God is making it worse for Abraham because he's telling Abraham precisely not what he is to do, but the gravity of what he's about to do. He doesn't say, go and sacrifice Isaac. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. He's reminding Abraham of the cost that is involved. And Abraham obeys, and that is why he's the father of the faithful, because I don't think his faith could get any higher than a willingness to sacrifice Isaac. What more could you have asked of Abraham to raise his faith to that level? And so the angel of the Lord says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, you will be the father of many nations. You will be the one that is the pinnacle of faith in the Old Testament Scriptures. But you see, the angel of the Lord that said those words to Abraham, he was nowhere to be found at Golgotha except on the cross. There was no angel of the Lord that would come down and say, enough is enough. Now I know that Jesus is willing 
to be crucified. Enough is enough. Let's not go through this with this. There was no moment like with Abraham where he's about to raise and strike and then he stayed by God because the angel of the Lord was on the cross. And that is because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, this isn't stated in the text and I usually don't think we should rush to bring in other truths that aren't stated in the text, but it is something that's important for us to understand. And that is not just that God was willing to give His only Son, but that the Son was as willing as the Father to lay down His life. This is something Paul brings out in Galatians. He speaks of this reality. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Who was put to death by His Father? He could have said that. Who was handed over by the Jews? He could have said that. Who was handed over by Judas? He could have said that. No, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Whatever you read of the Father in this text, who so loved the world that He gave His only Son, you must understand that Jesus embraced those words to the uttermost. That He loved you and gave Himself for you. Think of a scenario where a man who is very wealthy is having a walk on a street and a poor, lonely man is nearby and this wealthy man is about to cross the road but doesn't look the right way and this poor, lonely man comes in and dives in front and saves his life from certain death. And the wealthy individual saying to this poor, lonely man, you have saved my life. Please, is there anything I can do for you? And then insists, please come, you can take anything from my home. I am a man of wealth, you can take anything that you wish. If you see a car, if you see a painting, whatever you wish, come to my home and you can take anything. It is the least I can do for you for saving my life. And so this poor lonely man goes to his home and he looks around and there's much that pleases the eye. And then he says to this wealthy gentleman, Can I have him, your son? Can I have him? I'm a lonely man. Possessions won't do me much good if I'm lonely. Can I have your son? And you could see the horror with which someone who has promised to give anything in his home would be forced to accept the request that he said he would honor. Yes, you can have my son. I mean, it's the most horrible thing you could think of. But God gave willingly and freely and graciously His only Son. So that if anyone believes in Him, they will not perish but have eternal life. For God so loves a world that is going to perish, and rightfully so, that He provides the last thing in the world you would expect one to provide, that is their only son, to remedy a problem that you cannot remedy only insofar as you believe in the remedy. And then you will have eternal life. 
Now the, the context does unfold in verse 17 and 18 to illustrate the heightened problem that confronts all of us. For God did not send His Son. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. You look at all the statements of why Jesus came into the world. I've come into the world not to save the righteous but sinners. I've come that men may have life and have it abundantly. I come, I come, I come. And it's always with a view to a positive solution for why He came into the world. He did not come into the world to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. Now, He could have come into the world to merely condemn the world, but He didn't. In fact, He came into the world that the world might be saved through Him. That He took on flesh so that flesh might be saved. That He assumed to Himself a body and soul that bodies and souls might be saved. He came into the world to save the world and not be condemned because whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already you're all under God's condemnation by nature so nothing changes unless you believe there's not a state in which you're in a holding pattern and finally on that final day whether you believe or not no you are condemned and so you need to believe now And when you believe, there is no condemnation. Do you see Romans 8? You say that Luther says the Bible uh, is in John 3.16 in miniature. Well, uh, Romans 8 is sort of the the next stage of John 3.16. And then you keep on going in these concentric circles. But there's no condemnation. Maybe some of you were aware of the recent issue with uh, Van Gogh and his sunflowers painting. Yes? All you art connoisseurs in my midst. Shouldn't just use sporting analogies. I need to branch out a little and, you know, get into the, uh, the more intellectual side of the world. Well, there's this Van Gogh uh, painting called Sunflowers. It's in a museum and, you know, it's sitting there doing nothing, uh, as paintings do. Uh, and you go and you look at them and you marvel at them and, and so on. But some people evidently don't just marvel at them. They go in and they decide they're going to throw tomato soup. Or Sorry, I, I see Sam there. Tomato soup. Uh, JD. Oh, man. So they throw tomato soup at Van Gogh's Sunflowers painting. Now, this painting's worth roughly 80 million U.S. dollars, supposedly. It could sell for that, and probably now even more. You know, all press is good press. And it's horrific. I'm not get really caring about the so-called, how, how do we make a point in society? Well, uh, these people make a point by going, and after they throw the tomato soup, they glue themselves to something and... Uh, uh, try to make a point about our, uh, is Van Gogh's painting of sunflowers more important than sunflowers themselves, okay? Uh, that's the context. And you see the tomato soup all over the painting, you go, this is, this is horrible. But then you, you later find out, uh, as the report comes down, uh, we're thankful to state that the painting was not harmed at this incident, And the reason that painting was not harmed is because there is an imperceptible to the eye shield of glass that protects the painting, which makes sense when you think about it, given everything we're reading about humanity in this text. 
And this shield protects the painting from being harmed. And that's really what John 3.16 and 17 and onwards is trying to tell you that when you believe in the Son of God, there is no condemnation. There is no sin that can harm you. You can hurl whatever accusation, whatever sin at a believer, but if they believe in the Son of God, there is no condemnation. There is no harm. You are protected by the blood of the Lamb. And so whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Now this is the judgment of the scenario in verse 19. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, you see here that unbelief is a moral problem. It is an intellectual problem, by the way. I'm not going to say it's not an intellectual problem because a moral problem can never really be divorced from the fact that we have to make intellectual decisions about things. Faith has a knowledge component, but it is fundamentally a moral problem. The reason people don't believe is not because your arguments aren't good enough. It's not because you haven't advanced to the fourth degree of apologist and you've read enough Josh McDowell books or whatever other book you need to to prove that the gospel is true. The reason people do not believe is because they love their sin. And if they come into the light, their sins are going to have to be exposed for what they really are and so people love darkness they love sin rather than light because their works were evil now notice these people hate the light for everyone who does wicked things hates the light now what is the light or who is the light if the light is Jesus Christ and then by extension everything else associated with Christ, which I think is the case, but we know that Jesus will say in John's Gospel, I am the light of the world. This means that it is not Hitler, it's not Mussolini, it's not Mao, it's not any figure that you can think of historically who is the most hated person to have ever lived. It is actually, to the shock of many, our Lord Jesus Christ. And He actually goes to various lengths in the gospel to remind you of the fact that he is hated. In John 7, 7, the world cannot, what? The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. The world hates Jesus. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Or he who hates you hates my Father as well. And he who hates me hates my Father as well. People hate Jesus Christ. If they claim to love Jesus Christ as Gandhi did, and he said, you know, I love your Christ, but not so much your Christians, it is because they do not actually know the true and living God, and they do not know the Christ of the Scriptures 
And so, because of their sin, they make Christ into somebody He's not. They take a neutral stand and say, religion isn't for me, Christianity isn't for me, I don't really have a problem with Jesus and His sayings, but I have a problem with Christianity. That is just their sin. Keeping them from the light. Excusing them from the light. Because they love darkness. But notice there's two types of exposures. Verse 20 and 21. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Anyone who comes to Christ and actually is in His presence will be exposed by that. It's just the nature of God's holiness and what it does is it exposes you. And that is why as Christians we are exposed daily and that's why we confess our sins because we are exposed. The difference is when we get exposed, we have Christ who intercedes for us. But the reason people do not come to the light is they do not want to be exposed. But notice another type of exposure. But whoever, verse 21, does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's another type of exposure that happens. That those who live in the light take on the characteristics of the light and they expose now not their sins, but they expose the work of God in their lives. So it's still a moral issue. When you come to Christ, not only do you have your sins forgiven and you are no longer condemned, but your works now testify to the fact that you are in the light and these works are the works carried out in God, by God, for God. For from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. Now what can we say by way of application? I think... One of the things that struck me as I'm looking at this text is just how God motivates us in general in His Word. And if you think about if the greatest love that has been manifested in this world is the giving of His only Son to sinners, then it follows that the greatest evil is the rejection of that gift. That's a horrifying thing if you think about sitting here this day. That there's a sense in which if you don't actually believe in Jesus Christ as you walk out through those doors and you accept this wondrous gift, you are in a certain sense worse than somebody murdering someone outside right now. That specific sin of rejecting the greatest gift. Is it a sin to murder someone? Yes. And they are condemned for it. But there can be nothing worse than rejecting the greatest gift that God has to offer. And then you ask yourself, well, what does it mean to accept the greatest gift that God has to offer? There's a story, I've, I've told it before, I think it was many years ago. Maybe you've forgotten it or you know how it goes. And I think there was a movie where this was associated with, but I can't quite seem to find it. And I know someone's going to come up to me after and tell me all about it. So I look forward to that meeting. The story, something goes like this. And there's some details that are swapped and changed. So again, this is, uh, this is not me 
claiming that this is a factual movie replication. But the story goes like this. There is another elderly man who is very wealthy. And he only has one son. And his son is his pride and possession. And the son is, I think, uh, 17 years old. And there's a war going on in uh, Japan. And so he has to send his son away because his son has gone to Japan for the war and goes to Japan. And the son was a bit of a painter himself. Now, this elderly gentleman owned many, many paintings, uh, Van Goghs, by the way, and Rembrandts and so on. And I mean, extreme wealth. But this son was a bit of a painter himself. And so when he was in Japan, he painted a picture of himself so that if anything happened to him while he was in Japan at the war, this painting would be sent back to his father so that he would have a memorial of his son, even though his son had been killed. As the story goes, the son did in fact die. And so one day the knock on the door, the gentleman there standing with a painting and the painting was given to the father who received it with the note that your son wanted you to have this. Now, that painting went up in his house and it was more valuable to him as a father than all of the other paintings that he had. Even though it was nothing like a Rembrandt, or a Van Gogh. And as the elderly gentleman got older and died, there was no one to leave all of this great estate to. And so there was an auction. And people from all over the world came to the auction. And they came to get these paintings that were of such value. Now what happened at the auction is the first painting that went up was the painting of the sun, which nobody knew who had painted this, why it was there, and what it was about. And it clearly wasn't a very sophisticated painting. And no one would actually buy it. Until the gardener at the back said, I will take the painting. And so it was sold to the gardener for a minimal price. And then the auction ended because there was a stipulation in the Father's will that whoever took the Son would get everything else with that painting. And that's the point of the Gospel that whoever believes in Jesus Christ, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not along with Him, the Son, the painting so to speak, graciously give us all things? That if you believe in Jesus Christ, it doesn't just mean you get to have a get out of jail card and a get into heaven card. It means that it changes your life so that you really do believe that God will with Jesus give you all things. So how do you know that? Well, each day, do you go to a God who has promised all things along with Jesus Christ and ask Him to sustain you and provide for you and help you in the lesser things? Because sometimes it's going to Him in the lesser things that proves that we've really gone to Him for the greatest thing. But when you just presume upon His kindness and you just presume upon food on your table and you presume upon all these other things, maybe you're actually also presuming upon what it means to really trust Jesus Christ. He gave you the best. Not simply so that you might think, I get to go to heaven now. But that heaven, in 
a certain sense has entered into your life and you walk in the light and you live in light of the fact that God has given you his very, very best and along with him everything else so that you can go to him for everything else, not just some things. And that's the glory of God so loving the world that he gave his only son. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and ask that as we in so many ways want so many things from this world, if we would simply believe that in giving us Jesus Christ, you have given us everything else that we need. But O Lord, let it be that Christ is not second or third, but may it be that he's first and prized among all things. We ask this for each and every one of us. Amen.